you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 87. The 87th Psalm. We will um, begin our studies of Ecclesiastes next week on Sunday nights. But tonight we'll look at the next Psalm we had here. There's a There's a danger in thinking that God is ultimately concerned with which earthly kingdom rises or falls. Like that's his main priority. The Bible is very clear. Make no mistake. It is God who determines the rise and fall of the kingdoms, the nations on the earth. He even determines the boundaries and borders of those nations and when the peoples of the world will mingle with one another when they won't. All of that is true, absolutely, but that is not his goal. In other words, that is not the purpose for which God is controlling all of history, the rise and fall of certain earthly kingdoms. That would be like saying um, the ultimate purpose of a parent is to keep a child from breaking their arm. Um, do you as a parent want to keep your child from breaking a bone? Absolutely, I hope so. But is that the ultimate purpose of parenting? No. So to such a degree that you would orient everything in your lives around making sure that child doesn't break their arm. Could you imagine how uh, life would look if that was the main purpose of what you're doing? It isn't that it's unimportant or doesn't matter if they break a bone. It's just that's not the main purpose of parenting. God's ultimate concern is not what nation in the world happens to be on top at any given moment. It's just not the goal. It's it's controlled by God, absolutely, but it's not the priority. In fact, Paul would say in Ephesians that God's eternal purpose is wrapped up in the church, actually, uh, now realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So from capitalist America to communist China, England under King George, America now under Joe Biden, it's it's actually all here to serve the ultimate purpose, which is the church, redemption. God is is not here to perpetuate the kingdoms of the world, but to bring people out of the world and bring them into heaven. Everything else is serving that end, that goal, that priority. This is what we see as we look to the 87th Psalm and its fulfillment. So let me pray for us one more time before we go to this text. Father, I Thank you for your word, for its beauty and perfection and sufficiency in revealing Christ to us in 2021 on a Sunday night. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. I thank you for all that have come. I thank you for the opportunity to gather here freely. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts tonight. Let us think clearly about your word and what we see that we might believe in Christ even more than we did When we came in, we ask and pray for these things. I ask that you would help me preach to that end and not another. Please guide my thoughts, my words tonight, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first three verses of Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken O city of God. So the sons of Korah are writing about Jerusalem. Yes, there was a promised land. 
flowing with milk and honey, Canaan, Israel, of course, but more than anything in that land, God loved the city of Jerusalem. Verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. So um, the point is that the neighboring countries of Israel, the, the ones around it, those people, they know the ones that have been born in Jerusalem. It, it's like the difference between being born in Moundsville or New York City um, to the rest of the world, right? If, if, if somebody asked you, where were you born? And you said Moundsville, West Virginia, they would say, oh, that's nice. And I, you, you know, I don't, I'm not putting down Moundsville. That's not what I mean. But if you said this to somebody in another country, they asked you where you were born. You said New York City. They say, oh, I, I know that place. I've heard of that place. That's kind of the, the, the point being made here. It's, it's Jerusalem is such a, a, a big deal, a, a well-known city. Verse 5. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. So the Lord is building Jerusalem, and he's the one inhabiting it, meaning he's the one peopling it, right? He's filling it with people, bringing people into her, establishing it through birth. And he's the one recording the births that take place in the city of Jerusalem, verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. All of my springs are in Jerusalem. Uh, All the good and perfect gifts that flow down from God find their fulfillment in Jerusalem, the sons of Korah wrote. Beloved, I believe now that Christ has come and finished his work and ascended back to the Father and now reigns from his right hand, we must read Psalm 87 not speaking of earthly Jerusalem. Um, This is not speaking of the city that is currently standing half a world away as we speak tonight. This is not the city of which America said, I think, um, in the last few years we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, right? Recognize it as the capital. That's right. That's absolutely correct. I agree with it. I support it. That's great politically, no question. But in terms of the plans and purposes of God, it's it's irrelevant. It, It means nothing. Um, I believe Psalm 87 is speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. And God is causing that great city to grow in number through birth. Think about that. What kind of birth makes the heavenly Jerusalem the city of one's birth? What is the significance of talking about this great city, Jerusalem, and God is the one building it and inhabiting it with people? Is that coming about by people moving into it through immigration? No. It's birth. You're born there. It's, it's, that's the city that's on your birth certificate, so to speak. And, and, and as we read that tonight, what is the significance for us? This is not earthly Jerusalem. This is the Jerusalem of which John writes in Revelation 3 to the church in Philadelphia, to the one who conquers, I will write on him the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. This is the city that John saw In Revelation 21, I saw Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the heavenly Jerusalem, of which the writer of Hebrews says, we've not come to an earthly mount. We've we've come to a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly city, the one whose designer and builder is God. That's where we're from. That's the city we inhabit. So just as there was an earthly temple and earthly priests, there's a heavenly Jerusalem with a heavenly high priest, a heavenly lawgiver, the heavenly sacrifice. 
Jesus, King of the New Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem is still inhabited by the old people. The New Jerusalem is where God has made his capital, so to speak. There is a new heaven and a new earth, and we have a new city, and it will come down out of heaven. The old will pass away. The new will come. What is the significance of this for us today? In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people who have professed faith or professed to have come to faith in Christ. They've experienced a new birth. Remember when this is a motif that runs all through Scripture, when you think about it. Remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. You remember that conversation? How do you, a teacher of Israel, not understand these things? Right? It was so obvious, it was so clear. Jesus is just bewildered at the fact that Nicodemus doesn't see it that way. How do you, a teacher of Israel, not understand this, that you must be born again? Your first birth as a citizen here, did you no good to come into God's good graces? You need to be born again. How did you not know that God is building a new Jerusalem through birth to be his people? How do you not understand this? So Paul is looking at the Galatian Christians, and he has some concerns over them. Um, it, it's interesting when we say that. What were Paul's concerns with people? I, th- I think most of the time, if you were, again, um, to listen to, I, I guess, a, a, a lot of different preachers, uh, mainline ones, I, I mean mainly if, if you were to walk through a Christian bookstore and look at the books on the shelf, I, th- I think most modern concerns are with people's sinfulness. Not committed enough, not radical enough, not doing enough right things. Uh, but when Paul thinks about the churches he's planted, rarely does he go back and think about, talk about their ongoing rampant sinfulness or lack of commitment. He thinks and writes about their misunderstanding of the gospel. That's mainly what's on Paul's mind when he writes, whether they're sinful or legalistic. It's the, the issue is that they aren't living in light of the gospel. It's like they don't believe it or they don't understand it. So he's often wondering as he writes, you can see it, I wonder if the gospel has taken root in their hearts at all or have I completely wasted my time, Paul says. So let's trace this through. And remember, we're talking about the significance of Psalm 87 for us. I'm going to pick up Galatians in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, a finished work, right? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The question here is, did you receive the Spirit of God? That Remember, that the gift of the end times, we talked about this morning, the sign that the new covenant has come. Did you receive, as Gentiles, the Spirit of God because you completed the works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit because you heard a message and believed it? Right. That's what Paul is asking. And if you started by the Spirit, that is, if you started through belief, through faith in this message... Why are you trying to complete your salvation a different way than continuing to hear and believe that message? Why, why do you think that you started spiritually by having faith, but that you end 
by the works of the law. You perfect that faith through your works. Why do you believe that? Paul is saying. That's a tremendously crucial question that never goes down in its importance. To believe that is to be bewitched, not mature. Paul is saying, why do you think you will complete this salvation in a different way than it started for you by believing the message you hear with faith? Why are you trying to bring it to completion, finish it out by works, by the flesh? So Paul is doing something here. He equates the flesh with the works of the law. Right? That's, that's a very interesting way to talk about the flesh because we normally equate the flesh with what is rotten in us, which is correct. Here, Paul equates flesh with trying to complete your salvation by the works of the law. Okay, that's, that's an amazingly important category to create for the Apostle Paul, for Christians to think through. To try to please God now by your works, by obedience, is fleshly thinking. It's worldly thinking now that Christ has come and begun a new creation, right? There's a new world that's begun where faith is what works. That's what's counted as righteousness. To try to be righteous any other way, whether as a Christian or a non-Christian, would be of the old world. It would be worldliness. That's an amazing thing. Now, most of us are sharp enough. I'm not being... Uh, not patronizing, I'm being serious. Most of us are smart enough, though, to never actually say that's what we're doing. Most people, if you put them to the question, do you believe that you're going to finish your salvation by works? They're not going to say, yes, I do. We don't do that. We're human beings. There's a reason Jesus didn't entrust himself to people. We lie. We're not honest. We're all little communists in the way that we talk. We never say what we mean, right? Don't be offended. Don't be mad. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, right? Communists don't tell the truth. If communists were honest about what they are, people would never listen to them. So they're not honest about what they are. They lie, right? That's what human beings do. We, don't, we aren't honest. No, I don't believe I'm completing my salvation through works. I'm not trying to finish by works what I started by faith. We aren't going to say it. Because we know it's incorrect. And most preachers, I speak as a preacher, are smart enough not to admit out loud that that's what they believe too, that people are perfected by their works. Again, if you, if, if most of the time, what would you believe a person actually believes when you listen to their sermons? That you're saved by grace, completely, apart from works, or that you're actually, your works have something to do with it or you're not saved. Just think through that, right? So, we preachers deal in words. So unfortunately we know how to manipulate them just right. So that you don't hear, uh, what we're saying, but what we want to say. Again, I, I know it's such a rough analogy, but but, it, but just think that through, just to, to get that picture in your head. You said to a communist, do, do you believe in a worldwide utopia? Yes, I do. Do you believe that that's attainable for humanity, to, to create a utopia free of any problems? Yes, I do. Do you believe that it's so worth creating that anybody who gets in the way should be eradicated or that disagrees with it should be eradicated? Yes, I do. 
they're never going to say that. <laughs> because if they said it, right, you until they're in power. But if they said it, people would be, oh my goodness, that's repulsive. So they don't say that. They say completely different things. I think that a lot of time, a lot of the time we're doing that when we talk. We're not Again, not that we're actually communists. That's not the point of the example. The point is, is that sometimes we know that if we said what it was that we really believe, people would think we're crazy or we're insane, so we don't actually say it, so we manipulate with words. Most Christians, most preachers, speaking as a preacher, are not going to say out loud, yes, we start by faith, you start by grace through faith, but it's completed by the law. It's completed by obedience. But if you listen, we're going to talk in such a way that it sounds like that's what we really believe. We just use different words. There's always buts and all those and things like that. Even if we don't use the words, do you believe people are saved by grace apart from works? Yes, I do. Completely. Yes, I do. Do you believe God is building the new Jerusalem, making people its citizens simply by causing them to be born again by grace through faith, completely apart from good works, and that works have nothing to do with gaining your final salvation? Well, see, that's, that's where it starts to break down. Yes, works don't save. They don't complete your salvation. But, I mean, come on, if, if they're not there, are, are, you, are you saved? Paul says that someone has bewitched these believers. Someone has gotten in their heads with strange doctrine, like you can somehow mix spirit and law. That somehow you can, you can pull a fast one and you can mix faith and works. There's gotta be a way. The problem is, is what Paul is doing. Those are two different categories entirely. The spirit and faith, they go hand in hand. Works and the flesh, works and the law, they go hand in hand. And these two systems are opposed to one another when it comes to our salvation. They're two different systems. One is heavenly, one is earthly, and they don't mix. That's where he's going with this. Pick it up in Galatians 3 and verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, there's no mix. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it, the belief, was counted to him as righteousness, as righteousness he had done. So it's in, in this system, in the gospel, it's faith that's counted fully as righteousness. Where there is faith, there is righteousness, there is salvation, full stop, right? That's very important to see. Skip down to verse 10. And I'm, I'm skipping for the sake of time. I encourage you always, always read these things. Study them, drink them in. Don't take my word for anything. Read God's word again and again and again and again. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law, and let me go back up to verse 9, just real quick. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse, not, not were under a curse, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things 
written in the book of the law and do them. This is very simple, right? All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Rely on it for what? Anything. Anything. You see that. To rely on the works of the law for anything means you're under a curse. Say, well, we don't rely on it for our salvation. We're we're proving that we're Christians by following it. Because it shows us how to live rightly. Does a Christian need the law now that the Spirit has come to show them how to live rightly? No. No. You do not need the works of the law. In fact, that increases sin. It inspires sin. If you want to sin, make a rule. Right? You want more criminals? Make more laws. Now, I understand forensically, legally, that's a whole different discussion for the sake of practicality. I totally get it. But the fact remains. Right? You you want more lawbreakers, just create more laws. You want your kid to get cookies, tell them not to get cookies. Right? Don't touch that jar. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. I'm going to turn my back. Don't touch it. Right? Just that's what the Bible talk that the Bible testifies to that. It's it's evident in creation. The law is written on my heart so deeply that I can't help but want to break it. That's Romans. But the more rules, the more criminals. And and knowing that, knowing what we know about how rules work and how laws work, it's like we still want to put people under a curse by putting them under the law. It's like we want people to break the law. So we, we just keep creating standards to follow. Well, Tony, duh, not to be saved. Right? We're not Pharisees. We, we, we don't create law to be saved. We don't want people to be under the works of the law to be saved. We just want them to rely on it to, to know that they're saved. To prove that they're saved. Because if we don't live differently from the world, this is so ironic. If we don't live differently from the world, how are they going to know that we're not of the world? God says that the world is under a curse because they break the law. Because of the works of the law. So think about this. How would you go about proving to someone you're not of the world? By not being under the law. That the world is under the law. It's under the curse because of it. So if you want to prove that you're not worldly... You don't put yourself under the law as a means of righteousness. That's Paul's whole argument. And, and we just, we just completely miss it. But we, we don't want to, how are they going to know that we're, we're not of the world if we don't live differently from the world? How does the world live? It tries to make itself righteous through law. That, that's what all this is about now. All of it. I mean, that, what, what, what happened with COVID? It got hijacked to be a measure of your righteousness, your love for other people, your concern for other people. That's what wearing a mask is about. You want people to die? You want your grandmother to die? Right? Everything. That's what man does. We'll hijack everything and make it a means of salvation and a means of righteousness. So what would be the 
otherworldly thing to do. It would be to walk by faith and not rely on the works of the law and remain under a curse like the world is. Well, would people just go off the rails? No, they won't. Grace does not increase the trespass. The law does. How do you prove you're not of the world by not being under the law? Not by perfectly keeping it, or at least trying to. That, that's not how you prove that you're not of the world. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. I mean, I at least try to keep the law. Well, then you're cursed. Right? You, you realize what, any command you take, I mean, you just take one. Well, I really got to follow that one. Well, then don't break it. Because the minute you break it, you're back under the curse. Second part of verse 10 there, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's a package deal. If you put yourself under any law, any of them, under any part of it, say that one still remains, we got to do that one. The law is a system. It's a package deal. If you put yourself under any part of it, you have to keep all of it. That's what it is to be under the economy of law. You can't just parse out 10. You can't parse out. Uh, the, 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 the Bible doesn't do that. right? The Bible calls the whole covenant the book of the law. Like, like it, it, It's a package deal. You, you don't get to pull out 10 or 15, or 30, or 7, or 1, or 6 of them, if you say that one you have to follow, you're under all of them. You're accountable to all of them. A new world has been created. A new creation exists where you become righteous by faith completely apart from works. Being under the law also, it's it's not just about agreeing with God over what is right and wrong. That's what I mean when I say I'm under the law, Tony. I just agree with God over what is right and wrong. We, we, we hear this sort of thing so often. We, we, we have to, you know, have you ever heard Christians try to debate the finer points of what real repentance is? Right? What's repentance? Well, repentance is agreeing with God that what I'm doing is wrong. No. And Paul goes after that in Romans 1. People, everybody knows. Everybody agrees with God that what they're doing is wrong. They just don't care. They're suppressing the fact that they know it's wrong. Right? Even those under the curse agree with God that what they're doing is wrong. That's why they hide it. Or they seek to not have to hide it. And openly cherish it and command that everybody else openly cherish it. But everybody knows They're doing wrong when they're doing wrong. Everybody already agrees with God that they're in the wrong. Repentance is not agreement with God that what you're doing is wrong. That's just what it means to be under the curse. Repentance is giving up works of the law to save you. It's to stop believing that anything you do or don't do is what will make you righteous. Our prayer is, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? Believer or unbeliever. That's our prayer. Forgive me. Save me. Look at verse 11 here. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Just why don't we believe that? Why do we have to insert works there? How do the righteous live? What do they live by? Faith. That's it. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's the law. And and that principle, the one who does them shall live by them, is in direct opposition to faith. Do you see that? That's in the text. The law is not of faith. Well, but I, I, that's the thing. I obey the law by my faith. No, you don't. The law is not of faith. They're two opposite things. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So, it's, it's not the agreement with the law that somehow mysteriously counts as keeping it. Like, I agree with God that that's the right way to live. Well, okay. That doesn't mean you've kept it. And, and this is not, if you agree with it, you live by it. No, no, if you do them, you live by them. That's the system of the law. It's not the agreeing with, it's not the liking, it's the obeying, it's the living. That's what matters, that's what counts. The law system is, if you do them, if you do these things, that is, if you obey them, you'll live. If you do not, you will die. No exceptions. And how much of that do I have to do? What? How many do I have to keep? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Again, Paul is begging the question to these Galatians. Who fooled you into thinking you'd want to go back under the law? Who did that to you? Who bewitched you? And how could something like that be enticing to people? You ever thought about that? How could you be bewitched out of grace by the law? By tapping into the flesh that wants to be under the law. Rather than under grace. I pay my way. Oh, okay. It's just an amazing book. But that's not how faith works. Faith is not brought out by what a person does. Right? Faith reaches out to God for salvation. Period. It believes the word. And God counts that as righteousness. You are righteous. Look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ became the curse for us. Why? Because if you're under the law, you're under a curse. If you, if you don't get out from under the curse by a better following of the law, either as a Christian or as a non-Christian, that's not the way out from underneath the curse. Christ became that curse for us so that we could actually genuinely be delivered from it by his cross, by his death on a tree for us. And most of the time, beloved, we are just striving to obey laws. Didn't Paul strive? Yes, to stop thinking of his righteousness as what made him acceptable before God. He counted it as rubbish. He wanted to know Jesus. So he was striving in Philippians to get away, to count everything as loss. All of the things he had done. 
for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, His Lord. It's just constant, right? We, we just, we refuse to believe that the righteous live by faith. We, we want to mix. Do you believe the righteous live by faith? Absolutely. And some law. Right? And some law. And remember, we're working our way through the significance of the message of Psalm 87 as the new Jerusalem for us. So over in chapter 4, Paul talks about how believers are heirs now. So that's, that's where the flow of his argument goes. The, these people that have received the Spirit by faith, that have believed in Christ, they're heirs now. They're heirs with Christ. Paul calls them sons of God. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son, so that's how you receive the Spirit, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now we're children of God. Born again into the family of God. He sends His Spirit into our hearts, which gives us the desire to cry out something we never did before, Abba, Father, crying out the same words Jesus did in the garden when He wanted to be saved, right, from what He had to endure, but on our lips because He wasn't and was forsaken for us, when we cry it out, we are saved. Abba, Father. 8, verse 8, Formerly, oh, beloved, I know we went through Galatians a long time ago. I, I, I know that some of this is just, just please listen to the Bible. Don't listen to me. Listen to the Bible. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. That's the law now. Whose slaves you want to be once more. And notice notice verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul says, how do I know that someone has bewitched you? How do I know that something's wrong with you? What's the evidence? Here's the evidence. You observe days and months and seasons and years as the evidence of being a Christian, of your salvation. Can we hear that? You ever bump into a Christian that doesn't want to celebrate Christmas? I'm not talking about JWs. Talk about what would you think of a Christian that said, I don't really want to celebrate Christmas? <gasps> you don't want to remember the birth of Jesus? I, I love Christmas, by the way. I'm not talking about myself. You don't want to remember the birth of Jesus? Yeah, I, I where's the where's the verses? about the holidays that you're supposed to if you're not if you don't do that if you don't observe that if you don't have that service 
If you don't sing that song, where are they? Right? Where are they? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And you think that you're spiritual because of that, Paul says. That's how I know you've been bewitched by works. You're still counting on doing certain things on certain days to be of a benefit to you, Galatians. Right? That's worldliness. That's worldliness. That's the economy of the law to make you righteous, not the economy of faith. I mean, Paul says you created a code to live by as Christians. And, and look, it's still here. You'll feel guilty if you don't say Merry Christmas. You'll feel guilty. You'll feel like it's wrong if a person that doesn't believe in Jesus won't give lip service to your king by saying Merry Christmas. That's wrong. It's wrong that they don't do the thing we created. Right? Look, you feel how awkward it is in here right now? You feel that? You, you, you. It, it just, just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the things that we cling to as marks of spirituality, right? Like, I wonder how many people right now can't even enjoy communion because we don't have the bread. We have the little plastic wafers, right? You realize that's what Paul is talking about, right? That, that like, if it's not the thing that we do, it's I, you're taking something from me, Tony. You're taking something from my spiritual experience. You want to talk about the claws coming out? Mention that maybe we won't be able to have a Christmas Eve service. <laughs> right? My goodness. I was having lunch with my family. My phone blows up. Goodness sakes. What's happening there? You are threatening my spirituality, tough guy. Beloved. No, listen. Paul is saying you actually think something more spiritual happens in certain places at certain times with certain things. And the reason you believe that is because somebody has bewitched you and you've left the gospel behind. Because it doesn't matter where you are on December 25th. You're my child. Right? Talk on it. Look, we... We might have more feelings of joy at certain times in certain places. And it, look, I, I, for the sake of the example, I love Christmas time. Not ending the service. That's not my point. Right? It just, there's so much to talk about here. Yes, we might have more feelings of joy and feel better. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. At certain times, in certain places, that's fine. I, I totally am fine with that. 
And it, I'm not your judge anyway, right? It wouldn't matter if I wasn't fine with it. I'm, I'm not your judge. My, my point is nothing more spiritual is happening to draw you nearer to God because of days, months, seasons, years, and man-made traditions. That is not what makes you his child. We're citizens of heaven, of the new Jerusalem. Why? Well, because God has caused us to be born again. That's it. And look, when I, look, I don't think I'm more spiritual than anybody in this room. That's not why I say these things. It's, It's really not. I don't. Excuse me. I don't like to be like this. I guess sometimes it just comes out. I don't know. That stuff gets old. Gets old. The things that we consider so spiritual, so important, so, and again, I'm, I'm trying to tell you, I'm not like sitting up high above everybody, looking down on everybody saying it's so unspiritual. It's that for, in my position, you, you kind of have to navigate all those things all the time and it just gets, it just gets old. It's like, why, why is that even a thing? Why is that a question? Why would we argue over that? Why would we create tension over that? It does nothing for us, right? It might feel important to us and that's fine, but it's like it, like how can we read these things of what Jesus has done and the minute the service is over, like be mad? That something isn't happening or something isn't the same or something isn't right. How does that happen? How does that happen? Because God's children are God's children no matter where they are or what they're doing. Right? I mean, that that's... My kids are my kids no matter where they are. No matter where they are. It, it, it doesn't matter what they're doing even. Let's say that my... God forbid one of my kids is out sinning somewhere. Does that mean now they're not my child? No, it doesn't mean that. They can never not be my child. Ever. And what, what is he, what's the point he's just made? The Spirit's been sent into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. That's how much of a child we are. We have the words of Jesus on our lips because of the Spirit. 
We've been made heirs with him. And, and, and I, the, Paul's argument here is just amazing. Here's how I know you're bewitched. You observe days and months and seasons and years. That's how? Who would have ever thought those are the things that would signal you don't believe the gospel anymore? If that's what they become, their existence doesn't mean that that's what you believe or we believe. It's just the fact remains at some point, you got to hold that stuff then very loosely, not so tightly. Because at some point something happens that those things, those become the markers of spirituality. That's precisely what he's talking about. That's how it's coming out that they believe you're perfected by works, not by grace through faith. Right? That's why it's here. That's why it's so important. So, we're at 44 minutes. I thought this was going to be 19 minutes long and I was going to have to stretch it out. So, okay, I'm, all, I'm almost there. I'm on the last page. Okay, listen to this. Just let's, this is so good. Verse 21 of chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Here we go. Okay? This is beautiful. All right? Forget the fact that I was so upset earlier. It's over. It's gone. I'm fine. Okay? This is beautiful. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. See all the born stuff here? See all the salvation stuff? Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Ah, that's what Paul's talking about. Spirit and faith, flesh and law. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. It's going to be a big city. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. People are trying to bewitch the children of promise. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is incredible. This is incredible. If I just came up with this, like if this was just my idea, I think most Christians would laugh me out of the pulpit. Right? That's crazy. You can't talk like that about present Jerusalem. You're a heretic. You can't say those things. If, 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 if I would have just said that Mount Sinai, where the law was given, where Moses stood, where God came with such power and glory they couldn't look on it. If I were to say, say you, you remember that? That's Hagar now. That's how you should look at it. That's the slave woman now. Tony, are you crazy? And the city of Jerusalem then, that, that's in the Middle East right now, well that's the slave woman. That's Hagar. 
It's not the chosen one. It's the cursed one that's in slavery because it refuses to come out from underneath the law. People would lose it if I said that. The American church loves the world, so we love earthly Jerusalem. We're enamored with it. But what is the heavenly Jerusalem? Paul says to cast out the slave woman. Cast out present Jerusalem. It's the free one. It's the free woman in verse 26. The Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. Who's our? Who's he talking about? Believers. Citizens of the new Jerusalem. Verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Believers are citizens of heaven. Of the new and free Jerusalem. We are children of God completely by grace. By being born again and counted by God as a member of that city. God has recorded our name there. He's written it down. Right here. That's the registry of the new Jerusalem. The hand of Almighty God. So God, as was prophesied in the 87th Psalm, is bringing people worldwide into the new Jerusalem by birth, by the Spirit, with faith, by being born again, and registering them forever as citizens of it. And it has nothing to do with us and what we do, which is very good news, because I have nothing that is fitting to give to God. I have not kept the law enough. I have not. But Jesus Christ has saved me. Beloved, that's the story of the new Jerusalem. That's the story of salvation.